Hi, everybody. It's Derek, and this is your Foreign Exchanges World News Roundup for Thursday, March 30th, 2023. Uh, by way of a programming note, this will be our last one of these until Sunday, April 9th. I am taking uh, a bit of a break, spring break, if you will. Uh, I try to do one of these every year because this is right around the time when it starts to get to the point where I need a bit of a break. So uh, thanks, as always, for, for reading the newsletter. Let me say that up front. Uh, and, uh, yeah, we'll be back on April 9th, uh, barring anything unforeseen, obviously. I never, uh, always want to leave open the possibility, uh, but we should be back to, uh, back on April 9th. Uh, all right, let's get into it. There are a few anniversaries on March 29th, 1430. This is the, uh, date, uh, that the siege of Thessaloniki ended with the Ottoman conquest of the Byzantine-turned-Venetian city. It's an interesting story. Uh, the Ottomans were ruled by Murad II at this point, who was quite irritated with the Byzantines for having tried to put uh, his uncle Mustafa on the throne, on the Ottoman throne, uh, making a nuisance for him. And so he resolved to do away with the Byzantines, basically. He besieged Thessaloniki and uh, Constantinople at the same time. Uh, he was uh, unsuccessful in taking Constantinople, but that siege did prevent the empire from responding to the other siege of Thessaloniki. Uh, the residents of the city, once they realized there was no help coming from the empire, uh, basically uh, mutinied, rioted in a sense, uh, demanding that uh, the uh, ruler of their city was a cousin of the royal family, uh, the imperial family, that he surrender. Uh, instead, he decided the, to try the creative solution of selling the city to Venice uh, in a last-ditch effort to keep it out of Ottoman hands. The Venetians bought it and then uh, kind of asked the Ottomans to lift the siege so that they could come in and take possession of it. The Ottomans said, I, we're not going to do that, uh, and eventually the city did fall uh, to their control. So, uh, yeah, interesting story, kind of a, uh, a funny little, uh, episode in, in, uh, European relations of the time, I guess. Uh, also on March 29th, 1857, an Indian sepoy named, uh, Mangal Pandey engaged in an act of insurrection against British East India Company officers at his military base outside of Kolkata. Uh, he was arrested and later hanged, as was his immediate superior, for refusing to arrest him in the first place. Uh, Pandey's case highlighted the growing dissatisfaction many sepoys were feeling toward the EIC, and his example helped spark a mutiny, which is known uh, in some cases as the Indian Rebellion of 1857. The insurrection failed, but it prompted... Uh, the British government to strip India from the East India Company's control and take direct control of it as a crown territory, uh, which it remained until it gained independence in the 20th century. Uh, on March 30th, 1856, representatives of Austria, France, the Ottoman Empire, Prussia, Russia, Sardinia, and the United Kingdom signed the Treaty of Paris, ending the 1853 to 1856 Crimean War. Uh, the war was a serious defeat for Russia. Uh, the terms reflected that. The Black Sea was designated as neutral territory, barring all warships, but in particular Russian warships, from its waters. Uh, Russia was also forced to give up territory in the Danube and forfeited to France any claim it had uh, as to being the protector of Christian subjects in the Ottoman Empire.
Empire. This is, of course, the result of Britain and France coming into the war on the Ottoman side. Uh, the Russians, needless to say, uh, would be back. Uh, on March 30th, 1912, Sultan Abdel Hafid of Morocco and French diplomat uh, Eugène Renard sorry, uh, signed the Treaty of Fez, making Morocco a French protectorate. Uh, Abdel Hafid signed the treaty with a French army encircling Fez. So you might say that he was well motivated to agree to a fairly lopsided arrangement that looked a lot more like a colonial capitulation than a protectorate along the lines of Egypt's relationship to Britain. Uh, in fairness, though, Egypt relationship to Britain was increasingly looking like a colonial one by this point, too. Uh, but the treaty was not well received by the Moroccan public. Riots broke out in Fez the following month, uh, and later concessions made to Spain in the Rif, or uh, also known as Spanish Morocco, uh, helped fuel the Rif War, which ended in 1927 and involved uh, Spain fighting the Berber tribes of that region. Uh, on to the news. There's a new paper published in Nature on Wednesday concluding that Antarctic ice melt is slowing ocean currents around the world. Uh, the melting water affects ocean density, which in turn disrupts circulation patterns. There hasn't been much research on this effect in the Antarctic. Much more has been done on Arctic ice melting. Uh, but the findings, uh, which suggest a 40% decline in deep ocean water flows from the Antarctic, uh, I'm, I'm quoting that from Reuters, uh, are not good. Uh, drastic changes in ocean currents could have enormous climate impacts in their own right, and they may also create a feedback loop as calmer ocean waters are in turn less able to absorb carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. So all told, uh, not good. Par for the course, I guess, uh, when it comes to climate change, but not good news. Uh, in the Middle East, in Syria, Syrian media is reporting yet another apparent Israeli missile strike near Damascus just after midnight local time on Friday morning. There is not yet any indication as to damage or casualties. Uh, normally, I would say uh, we will have an update tomorrow, but since there's not going to be a newsletter tomorrow, uh, if you are really interested in the story for some reason and there's anything that warrants an update, I will update the written. Obviously, I can't update the voiceover, but I will update the uh, written newsletter with anything that, uh, that I see. Uh, in Israel-Palestine, supporters of Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu held a large demonstration that included the blockade of a highway in Tel Aviv on Thursday, a few days after Netanyahu decided to pause his judicial overhaul plans in the face of considerably larger demonstrations against it. There are indications that Defense Minister Yoav Gallant, whose firing set off a massive new wave of protests, strikes, and business closures over the weekend, may wind up keeping his job, uh, but only after he apologizes for criticizing Netanyahu, just ridiculous, uh, for criticizing Netanyahu and the judicial plan. Uh, Netanyahu has still not made Gallant's firing official, but he has reportedly been interviewing potential replacements. Uh, at the same time, Interior Minister Arya Derry, who's the leader of the Shas party, has reported trying to broker some sort of deal that would leave Gallant as defense minister, though it might also require him to resign his seat in the Knesset. Elsewhere, writing for The Nation, activist Mohammed El-Kurd explains just how little the debate over Israeli, Israel's judiciary actually matters 
to the Palestinian cause. Uh, I'll just read a couple of paragraphs here. For now, the liberal and religious Zionists tussling over the public face of their regime in the streets of Tel Aviv have taken a breather. Calm that, is the st- calm, that is the status quo of occupying and besieging mil- millions of Palestinians, has been restored in our bad neighborhood's tiny Jewish haven. Uh, but tensions are expected to start anew after the judicial overhaul is presented before the Knesset again, most likely after the Jewish holidays. The conflict might not even wait that long, as pro-government protesters have called for a march against the, quote, shackles of the Supreme Court, end quote. As an insider observing this food fight, it is surreal to watch reporters and commentators promote the narrative that the government's Likud Jew Jewish power, religious Zionism coalition, and the Supreme Court exist on extreme opposing ends of the political spectrum. Their differences when it comes to how they rule over the lives of Palestinians are purely cosmetic. In essence, one camp wants to eat with their hands while the other wants to mandate forks and knives. But in both scenarios, Palestinian rights will be devoured. Uh, On to Saudi Arabia, where the Saudi cabinet voted on Wednesday to accept dialogue partner status in the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, the eight-member, at least currently, economic and security bloc that's effectively led by China and includes India, uh, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Pakistan, Russia, Tajikistan, and Uzbekistan. Uh, Belarus and Iran are also in line to join the club at some point, Iran perhaps uh, as soon as later this year. Uh, dialogue partner is the first stage of association. It's a step below observer status. So it's not a high level uh, association, but the move is another clear indication of the burgeoning relationship between the Saudis and China. In Iran, uh, the United Nations International Court of Justice partially ruled in Iran's favor on Thursday concerning the status of Iranian assets that have been frozen by the U.S. government since the Iranian Revolution. The ICJ found that the U.S. has unlawfully seized funds belonging to a number of Iranian individuals and entities uh, under the terms of a 1955 Treaty of Amity between the two countries. Uh, But the court punted on Iran's main complaint, uh, which is the status of some $2 billion uh, in Iranian central bank assets and interest, uh, agreeing with the U.S. argument that the bank was not protected under the 1955 accord. Uh, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled back in 2016 that those funds, the $2 billion, uh, give or take, should be seized under a 2007 verdict that ordered Iran to pay in total some $2.65 billion to victims of various violent incidents for which Iran is alleged to have been responsible, including the 1983 Marine barracks bombing in Lebanon. Uh, On to Asia. In India, the conviction of Indian National Congress Party leader Rahul Gandhi on a defamation charge earlier this month has, according to Reuters, given new impetus to Indian opposition parties to form a united front against Prime Minister Narendra Modi and his uh, Bharatiya Janata Party. Uh, There is something, uh, this is something Indian opposition parties have flirted with doing many times in the past, going well back to the days before BJP existed or was a a dominant force in Indian politics. Usually it doesn't amount to anything. Uh, But if the current opposition can somehow coalesce, it could be a genuine threat to BJP's chances in next year's general election. BJP won 31 percent of the vote in 2014 and a bit over 37 percent in 2019, coming away with parliamentary majorities in both cases, uh, in part because of a fragmented opposition. There's no guarantee, uh, of course, that a joint opposition would be able to unseat Modi, but its chances would presumably improve. 
Uh, in Myanmar, the Chin National Front rebel group, as well as independent media accounts, according to the AP, is claiming that Myanmar military aircraft killed at least eight civilians in an airstrike on a village in Chin State on Thursday. The Chin National Front has been active since the 1980s, but has more recently aligned itself with opponents of Myanmar's ruling junta. Uh, in China, uh, China purchased some 65,000 tons of liquefied natural gas from the UAE this week, uh, a routine transaction, except in as much as the sale was completed in yuan rather than in U.S. dollars. Uh, Beijing has been pushing Middle Eastern governments in particular to conduct transactions in yuan, which, if it catches on, could offer a new challenge to the dollar as the global reserve currency. Uh, a relatively small LNG sale isn't exactly going to start a trend, uh, but this is certainly something to monitor. In North Korea, uh, the Biden administration on Thursday blacklisted a Slovakian national accused of trying to broker an arms deal between North Korea and Russia. U.S. officials have been claiming for some time now that Russia was looking to North Korea as a potential military supplier to help support the war effort in Ukraine, though as far as I know, this is the first action the U.S. has taken in connection with an alleged Russian-North Korean transaction. Uh, on to Africa in Senegal. Osman Sanko's lib libel case ended barring appeal on Thursday with the Senegalese opposition leader being sentenced to two months in prison suspended along with a roughly $332,000 fine. Uh, that means he'll be eligible to run in next year's presidential election, which may appease the large number of his supporters who have been protesting regularly uh, amid his trial. Uh, Sanko is also uh, facing sexual assault charges, however, so he's still in some legal jeopardy. He and his supporters insist that these charges, both of them, are politically motivated to prevent his presidential campaign. In South Sudan, uh, President Salva Kiir on Thursday named a member of his own Sudan People's Liberation Movement Party, Chol Thon Balok, uh, as his new defense minister. Uh, this is a violation of the 2018 peace treaty that Kiir signed uh, with Vice President Riek Makhar, uh, under which uh, the defense ministry post is supposed to be filled by a member of Makhar's Sudan People's Liberation Movement in opposition faction. Uh, Kier earlier this month sacked former Defense Minister Angelina Tenney, who, as it happens, is also married to Makar. Uh, he subsequently met with Makar to discuss the issue, but the two do not seem to have come to an accord. At issue is whether or not they'll be able to continue implementing the peace deal. Uh, a general election is supposed to be held next year uh, to cap off that process. Uh, in Ethiopia, the Ethiopian government took another step in the implementation of its peace deal with the Tigray People's Liberation Front on Thursday by dropping criminal charges it had leveled against various senior Tigray, uh, well, TPLF, I don't need to say it again, uh, TPLF officials, sorry, uh, during their conflict. In recent days, Ethiopian officials have removed the TPLF from their list of terrorist organizations and approved the formation of an interim Tigray regional government led by former TPLF spokesperson Getachu Reda. Uh, Getachu, uh, for what it's worth, was, was one of the TPLF leaders uh, facing those aforementioned criminal charges. In Europe and uh, Russia, Russian authorities on Thursday arrested a Wall Street Journal reporter named Evan Gershkovich uh, on spying charges. Uh, the Russians haven't gone into any detail 
or offered any evidence regarding his arrest, so it's somewhat difficult to know what to make of it. It's likely this case will command a similar level of attention as the Brittany Griner arrested last year. Uh, and as with that case, the ultimate outcome may be a prisoner swap, though it is too soon, certainly, to say that with any degree of certainty. Uh, the Russians may also regard this as an opportunity uh, to put some fear into foreign journalists, in which case they will want to hold on to Gershkovich. Uh, uh, for some time, uh, who knows how long, but for a while at least, they will likely want to hold on to him uh, to emphasize the point that they're trying to make. Uh, the Committee to Protect Journalists issued a statement uh, on Thursday calling on Moscow to, quote, uh, immediately and unconditionally release Gershkovich uh, and to, quote, allow uh, the media to work freely, end quote. Uh, in Ukraine, Ukrainian officials are now saying that their forces only control a third of Bakhmut, which aligns with claims that have been coming from Russian sources this week and suggests that the front line in that city hasn't been quite as stable as other Ukrainian officials have been insisting in recent days. Uh, the Ukrainians still say their garrison in Bakhmut has not been surrounded. Uh, that is the only update I have on the conflict uh, as of today. Uh, in Finland, the last obstacle to Finland's accession to NATO dissipated on Thursday when the Turkish parliament voted to ratify the country's membership. With the Hungarian parliament having done the same thing on Monday, all 30 NATO members have now voted to let Finland into the club. They'll presumably make it official at the next NATO leader summit scheduled for July 11th and 12th in Vilnius. Uh, NATO leaders would like to admit Sweden at the same time, but neither Hungary nor Turkey has yet ratified uh, that country's accession, nor is there any indication that they're planning to do so in the near future. Uh, in the Vatican, uh, this is we don't usually talk about the Vatican uh, in this newsletter, but let's go for it. Uh, the Vatican on Thursday formally rejected something known as the Discovery Doctrine, which is a legal theory introduced uh, by the U.S. Supreme Court in the 1823 case Johnson versus McIntosh, or Johnson v. McIntosh, uh, that asserts that Europeans who discovered, quote-unquote discovered, land in the Americas were entitled to that land, its indigenous, indigenous inhabitants notwithstanding, uh, really European crowns, European states that discovered land in the Americas. Uh, the doctrine, which amazingly still gets cited in contemporary law, uh, see the 2005 Supreme Court case, City of Sherrill versus Oneida Indian Nation of New York, for example, uh, is partially rooted in the papacy's various Age of Discovery era missives, uh, papal bulls, if you're a, a, a good Catholic. Uh, the Vatican didn't rescind those bulls, mind you. It just repudiated the notion that they could be uh, used as a basis for the doctrine. Uh, it seems unlikely that this will have any real legal effect, but I am not a lawyer, so what do I know? Uh, on to the Americas. In Brazil, after holing up in Florida for three months following the end of his presidential term, Jair Bolsonaro returned to Brazil on Thursday to what seems to have been a sizable reception, but was perhaps smaller than what he was expecting. Bolsonaro told supporters he intends to lead the right-wing opposition to current President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, though before he can do that, he's going to have to wade through multiple investigations into his conduct as president and or his possible role in fomenting the January 8th riot by his supporters in Brasilia. Uh, and finally, in the United States, Ben Freeman and Yamin Hook at Responsible Statecraft look once again into the ethically spotless D.C. think tank community, which is apparently quite upset with the Biden administration's paltry $842 billion 2024 Pentagon budget request. I'll read you a couple of paragraphs here. 
Uh, quote, for defense, this is a pretty substantial step backwards, end quote, a scholar at the Center for Strategic and International Studies told The Hill. Uh, this amounts to a, quote, $28 billion cut to programs and activities, end quote, after you account for a troop pay raise and in inflation, an American Enterprise Institute expert told Defense News, which added that the AEI expert was pushing for a DOD budget of at least $882 billion. Uh, that $882 billion figure is perhaps coincidentally the exact amount of Pentagon funding another AEI scholar promoted in a recent op-ed for breaking defense. Unsurprisingly, think tank arguments for increasing Pentagon funding have also found their way into mainstream media outlets. The day before the Biden administration released its fiscal year 2024 budget, the Washington Post published an article bemoaning the defense industry's limited capacity to, quote, build things to kill people, end quote, as the head of a munitions facility told the Post. The piece cited CSIS research on the defense industry's struggles to replace stockpiles of the tens of billions of dollars in munitions the U.S. has given Ukraine. Earlier that same week, the Wall Street Journal ran an article proclaiming, quote, the U.S. is not yet ready for the era of great power conflict, end quote. As evidence, the author cited a CSIS war game that simulated a Chinese attack on Taiwan in which the U.S., quote, the U.S. side ran out of long-range anti-ship cruise missiles in a week, end quote. That same CSIS study was cited in a New York Times article published last week titled, quote, from rockets to ball bearings, Pentagon struggles to feed war machine, end quote. What goes unmentioned in any of these articles is that these think tanks clamoring for more defense funding are funded by the defense industry. Of course they are. You all knew how that was going to end. Uh, it's all uh, very above board and ethically, as I say, spotless. Uh, nothing to see here. It's really a wonderful, virtuous cycle. Uh, the defense industry gets more money and then they sock it into those think tanks who are just doing uh, their jobs, making the best thoughts that they can in their tanks. Uh, they're not at all influenced by where the money is coming from, I'm sure. Uh, on that note, uh, thanks to all of you for reading and or listening to the newsletter. Uh, and thanks to those of you who are foreign exchanges subscribers, especially if you are a paid foreign exchanges subscriber, making it possible for me to keep doing this. Uh, I can't thank you enough for that. Uh, as I say, we're going to take a few days off. I need very badly to, to unplug for a little bit. Uh, and uh, we'll be back on April 9th, barring any unforeseen complications. Uh, until then, as always, take care, and I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.